Good evening again, and thank you for being here. I'm grateful for your presence tonight. We're always thankful for those who come back. We invite you to be back with us Tuesday night, a little bit different night in terms of when we typically meet, but we'll be here Tuesday evening, and we hope and pray that you can be here as well. We're going to be looking tonight at Acts chapter 26 as we think about King Agrippa. Tonight we're going to be looking at King Agrippa. We've been talking in recent weeks. Matter of fact, over the course of this past year, we have been talking about some of the prominent characters in Scripture, both Old and New Testament characters. Some have been very good people, done a lot of great things, some not so good. And tonight we want to turn our attention to King Agrippa and think about Paul's defense before him. And so I want to call your attention to chapter 26 in our study tonight as we think about King Agrippa. Before we do so, I want to just very quickly say I appreciate Jared leading us in these songs tonight, particularly reminding us of how thankful we ought to be. We have been blessed in so many ways. James said that every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above. We always have something to be grateful for. And I think sometimes maybe we forget about all the great blessings that we enjoy in life. And so this week marks a week of thanksgiving, but hopefully and prayerfully we are thankful every day. Now tonight as we think about King Agrippa, let me just very quickly remind us of a couple of thoughts. Back in chapter 24, you remember, Paul had been brought before Governor Felix. And Paul had made his defense before him. There was a man by the name of Tertullius that had laid the charges before Felix regarding the Apostle Paul. He accused him of being a plague, a pestilent man. He also accused him of being one who caused dissension among the Jews, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And then he also identified the fact that he believed Paul had profaned the temple. So Paul made his defense before Governor Felix. Later, Paul had the opportunity to share the gospel with Felix and Drusilla. Well, Felix deferred, as you well know, said, when I have convenient season, I'll call for you. So then in chapter 25, we have an account of the apostle Paul making a defense before Festus. Festus then apprises King Agrippa of the charges that had been made against the Apostle Paul. And based upon what Festus said, Agrippa then told him, I'd like to hear him for myself. And so in chapter 26, in chapter 26, we have an account of the Apostle Paul making his apologetic, his defense before King Agrippa. And so the first thing I want to call your attention to is just that, his defense. There are really two things that Paul's going to stress in his defense. Number one, he's going to talk about his conflict with Christianity, which had been well documented. Matter of fact, as a Jew, there were many, many people that were very familiar with the life of the one identified in Scripture as Saul of Tarsus by way of his pedigree. The Apostle Paul, back in chapter 22, had confirmed the fact that he had been reared in Tarsus of Cilicia and that he had been privileged to sit at the feet 
of an esteemed teacher by the name of Gamaliel. Over in Philippians chapter 3, Paul would speak of that pedigree. You remember he said he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among the Hebrews. He said, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. So you read the book of Acts, it's evident. Saul of Tarsus was what we might call a modern-day terrorist. He was intent on destroying the cause of Christ. When we read about that great martyr, Stephen, you remember in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was martyred, the Bible says that they laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul consented to his death, didn't he? In chapter 8, Luke says that he made havoc of the church, entering, entering into every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So here's a guy that's intent on destroying Christianity. Those who were followers of the way. His, his goal, his desire was to ultimately put a stop to those who were following the Christ. And so with regard to his pedigree, very well known, highly esteemed among men. And then persecution, rampant persecution. Matter of fact, Note, if you would, what he says in chapter 26. In chapter 26, verse 9, Paul said, listen to him. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I also did. Now note, many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, when they were put to death, Paul said, I cast my vote against him, against them, going back again to Stephen and others. In verse 11, I punished them often in every, city, in every synagogue, compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged, enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Saul was intent on wrecking the church that Jesus bought with His blood that He built. But then, not only does He talk about His conflict with Christianity, but then His conversion to Christianity. Now, had we had the opportunity to have known Saul of Tarsus, would we have said to ourselves, you know what, that guy would make a fine Christian man. I think probably we would have been fearful of him because he was terrorizing the church. But God said, I want that man. Do you remember in Acts chapter 9, the Lord said, He is a chosen vessel of mine. God saw something in Saul of Tarsus. And so Paul recounts his conversion story. He talks about when he was on the road to Damascus. He had received authority from the chief priest to go to Damascus and if he found any who were of the way to bind them and bring them bound back to Jerusalem. And he said as he made that journey, something happened. The Lord appeared to him. You remember that? And the Lord asked him a very pointed question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, there are two things that stand out 
In this account, if you go back and look at chapter 9, in about verses 5 and 6, first, Saul asked the question, Who are you, Lord? Then secondly, he asked this question, What would you have me to do? I want to ask you tonight, is that not the proper order in terms of coming to know something about Christ and forgiveness? Is it possible sometimes we get the cart before the horse? We want to tell somebody what they need to do to become a child of God when we have failed to do the groundwork. We haven't talked about the Christ. Now, think again about what Saul of Tarsus asked. Who are you, Lord? Didn't Saul of Tarsus need to know something about the Christ, the one that he had been persecuting? Did he believe in his heart of hearts that Jesus was the Messiah? Now go back and read John chapter 3 when the Lord Jesus engaged in conversation with a fellow by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was identified by Jesus as the teacher of Israel. You think Saul of Tarsus? You think that he ran in those same circles with Nicodemus and Gamaliel and others? Sure. Saul was a very well-educated man, schooled in the Jewish religion. As a matter of fact, he said he was a Pharisee of the strictest sect. And so he wants to know, who are you, Lord? Well, the one he was persecuting was the very one that had been put to death on Calvary some years earlier. And the one that he had done everything in his power to destroy, including those who were his followers, the Lord said, look, in effect, you're persecuting me. When you persecute my body, you are persecuting me. In Acts chapter 8, you remember the account of Philip and the eunuch, the eunuch's on his way back home, reading Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering servant? When Philip comes in contact with him, he asks him this question, do you understand what you're reading? His response was, how can I accept some man? Guide me. Philip then joins him in the chariot. And they're reading Isaiah 53 together. And the Bible says, beginning at that same scripture, he preached to him Jesus. Listen to what Paul would say to the church at Corinth. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Before we ever tell somebody what to do to be saved, we've got to tell them something about the Christ. They've got to come to understand that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But He is the Anointed One, the Messiah, the One who came, lived, bled, and died for our sins. He's the Savior of the world, isn't He? That's why Paul would say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he wants to know, who are you, Lord? And then, secondly, he wants to know, what is it I need to do? Now, if you learn something about the Christ... And you know something about His deity and about His purpose for coming to planet earth. Then you'll come to understand something about becoming one of His children. So number one, who are you, Lord? Number two, what would you have me to do? Please listen very carefully. What God told 
Saul of Tarsus to do to become one of his children is the exact same thing we must do to become his child today. Not been a change in the plan. No, salvation was in Christ in the first century. Salvation was in the church of Christ in the first century. And salvation is in Christ and the church of Christ in the 21st century. Well, how do I know that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. When Ananias met up with Saul of Tarsus, do you remember what he said to him? And now, why tarriest thou? In other words, what are you waiting on, Saul? Arise and be baptized. Now listen to what he said. And wash away your sins. There is no way anyone will ever be forgiven of sin until they do exactly what God said in His Word. Well, what's that? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. He's already asked the question, Who are you, Lord? So he comes to an understanding that Jesus is the Christ, deity, the very Son of God. And based upon that, he's got to repent of sins, doesn't he? Why would he repent of sins? Because that's exactly what God said. Remember what Paul would say to the people in Athens? The times of ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to do what? To repent. And then to be baptized into Christ. Now, listen, I covered this the other day and I want to just stress it again. In the religious world, what people will tell you is you accept the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe on Him, you're saved, and then you're baptized. The order's not right there. The Bible says you believe and are baptized and then you're saved. Mark 16, 16. Now that's easy to understand, isn't it? Is that what Paul did? Yes, it is. Now, note if you would what God says concerning His purpose. He said, look, I have appeared to you for this very purpose. Note if you would that you might become a witness of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Now note if you would verse 17. And I will deliver you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. All right, here's your work, Paul. You're to go to the Gentile people, to the Jewish people. You're to stand before kings and you are to... Open their eyes. Is it possible that people in the world today are spiritually blinded? Didn't the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God of this age, the God of this world, has blinded the minds or the eyes of them which believe not? You know, there are some people, they see it, but they don't see it. They hear it, but they don't hear it. So our job, our responsibility, as was the Apostle Paul, to open the eyes of people, to cause people to see where they are in the sight of God, to cause people to understand that God sent His Son to die for our sins, and that through Him and through His plan of redemption, we can enjoy salvation. That God would have all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth, that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we got to open people's eyes in the world today. There are a lot of people in our world, they're groping in spiritual darkness. 
And John said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In other words, in other words the world is engulfed in spiritual darkness. And yet Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He that followeth after me, listen to him, shall not walk in darkness. The devil is very happy for people to live in a state of spiritual darkness. And there are some people in the cause of Christ, some people in the body of Christ that have gone back into a life of darkness. So number one, he said, your job is to open their eyes. And then secondly, listen to what he says. To turn them from darkness to light. Again, the world's in darkness. The devil wants you to stay in darkness. Do you remember what, remember what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1? How he talked about when we become a child of God, when we qualify ourselves for that inheritance, we are delivered out of the power of darkness. The Bible identifies the devil as the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this age. Jesus identified him as the wicked one, the enemy. And so the Lord said to the Apostle Paul, or to Saul of Tarsus, at least at this point in time, you are to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light. Now note, from the power of Satan to God. Please listen very carefully. There are only two families in this world. God's family and the devil's family. If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are in the devil's family. Now in this politically correct climate today, people don't want to hear about that. And they don't want you to say anything negative, nothing pointed, but the fact of the matter is, if you haven't obeyed the gospel, you're not in the right family. And if you're not in the right family, when the Lord comes, you'll be lost. So the Lord said to Saul, you've got to open their eyes. You've got to cause them to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan. That says something about the power of the evil one, doesn't it? Look, the devil only has as much power as the Lord allows him to have, his permissive will. But if we allow him, the devil can reign in our heart. He can rule us. Now, Jesus wants to be the Lord of our life, but we can also allow the devil to be the Lord of our life. Just live for him. Do what he says. Now, when you turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, here's the end result, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins. What the Lord is telling the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus your job is to preach the gospel. When that gospel falls on honest and good hearts, what's it going to do? It's going to bring fruit, bring forth fruit. When people have the right heart and that seed is deposited into the heart, it's going to yield fruit to the glory of Almighty God. So that's your job. So, in his conversion story here, he recounts to King Agrippa, or tells Agrippa, 
that his message is rooted in the law and the prophets. And again, the Bible tells us in verse 24 that Festus speaks up with a loud voice and says to Paul, your much learning has made you mad. In other words, Paul, you're a madman. Are you crazy? Listen to what Paul said. I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Now let me just pause here for a minute. Paul now begins a very serious dialogue with King Agrippa. First you have his defense, but then secondly, there is a deferment. Now, listen to what Luke has to say concerning Paul's dialogue with Agrippa. In verse 26, he said, The king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escape his attention since this thing was not done in a quarter, talking, talking about Christianity. That this wasn't done in just some small corner of the world, but everybody knows about this. Agrippa had a lot of power. The Romans had placed in his hands authority over the temple. He had the power to appoint high priest and also to depose them at his will. So Agrippa is very knowledgeable about the Jewish religion and the customs, that is, the Mosaic dispensation. So then in verse 27, here's what Paul asked. Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then notice follow-up. I know that you believe. Are there people today that know the gospel? And when I say know the gospel, I mean they understand God's desire for their salvation. They know what it takes to become a Christian. They believe it. The question is not, do you believe it? The question is, are you willing to obey it? So Paul here says, look, I know you believe what the prophets wrote. And there are people, it may be that you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You believe Jesus died for your sins. You believe that the Lord was raised from the dead on the third day. You are convinced the Lord Jesus will one day come again and that the Lord wants you to be saved. It's not a matter of wanting you to be saved. The question is, are you willing to submit your life to what the Bible has to say and become one of His children. Now there are some questions in the text regarding the answer that Agrippa gives, Agrippa II, to Paul. Is he sincere? Or is he going to respond with sarcasm? Some translations say, almost, or you almost, make me to become a Christian. In other words, do you really think you can make me a child of God? Or do you think over just a short period of time you can make me to become one of the Lord's followers? I have no idea whether or not Agrippa was serious 
or if he was just sarcastically dismissing the whole thing. Nothing is said in Scripture about King Agrippa II obeying the gospel. So here's my question. Why do you think Agrippa, like Felix, deferred? Why do you think they said no to the gospel of Christ? I can only surmise as to why I think Agrippa and Bernice may have said no. Let me just share with you three quick things. Number one, is it possible that he said no to the gospel on the basis of his position? He was a powerful man, wasn't he? Well, did great authority. Are there people in the world today they like what they hear about the gospel. They're interested in the gospel. The problem is not that the message doesn't resonate. The problem is if they become a child of God, it's going to create trouble because of their position or maybe their level of, of power, authority in life. Agrippa II, very powerful man. came from a bloody family. There are lots of people. In their heart of hearts, they know that if they became a Christian, they would have to walk away from their lifestyle. And they're not willing to do that. Let me give you a second reason. Is it possible that Agrippa said no to the gospel because of pride? Pride a problem? Do you remember what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 16? Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Wasn't it Peter who said, humble yourselves in the sight of God? And what will he do? He'll exalt you in due season, in due time. Have you ever known somebody? They're too proud to admit they're wrong. Are there people in denominations tonight They've heard, the, they've heard the truth. They know what the Bible says about the one church. And they have heard straight up that there is nowhere in Scripture that you will find authority for the sinner's prayer. There are people that attend these services that have heard. You are not saved first and baptized later but they're too proud to admit they've been wrong. Let me tell you what, pride will cause a lot of people to lose their soul in a devil's hell. That's the truth of the matter. Well, you know, my family, they believe this way, or my family said this, or my family said that. Listen, it's not about what our family said, what our friends our friends have to say, not about what our co-workers say, it's about what does the Bible say. We've got to get back to preaching and teaching the Bible. As Paul said, you preach the Word. Paul would say, prove all things, test all things, hold fast that which is good. So here we are presenting the truth of God. When the Apostle Paul stood before Felix and Drusilla, he reasoned with them about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Anything wrong with the message? Absolutely not. Would it have been possible for Felix to punch holes in the doctrine Paul preached? No. 
I am confident that what I preach is divine truth. I do not believe that what I believe and what I preach, I do not think that there is anybody that can punch holes in the message. Now, I'm not saying anything unique to me. What I'm saying is that I have, I have done my research. Have you? I've done my homework. I know what the Bible teaches. I know what the Bible teaches about Christ, salvation in Christ, salvation in the church of Christ. And the day comes when I can't defend the truth of Almighty God, I will be more than happy to pull my shingle down. But I know without a shadow of a doubt, that's what the Bible teaches. There's only one church. That's not what the world wants to hear. That's not what a lot of folks in the church want to hear anymore. But that's what the Bible teaches. The question is not, does the Bible teach it? The question is, are we willing to believe it? Now, there are a lot of people in our world today, you start talking about the one church and you watch them run. We've got some people in the body of Christ, they wouldn't stand for what the Bible teaches on the one church for anything. And based upon what I've seen among some, my question is, why are you still affiliated with the churches of Christ? You don't believe what we teach. You don't practice the Bible. You're not willing to be submissive to the teaching of Almighty God. Why in the world would you have on your signpost out front the church of Christ? You don't represent the church. Pride. Pride. Some folks are not willing to obey the gospel because they're just too proud. Let me give you another reason. The price is too steep. Remember what Jesus said, one of the prerequisites to becoming a child of God, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Are there people that are not willing to deny self? Better believe it. Are you saying that we have to live a life of self-denial? Remember what Jesus said, Luke 14? Are there people that will allow family members to encroach upon their relationship to God? Are there some who would say, you know, I would obey the gospel, but... My mother, my father, my grandparents, my brother, my sister, whatever. Well, they believe this. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. There are some people not willing to pay the price to follow the Christ. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, if any man will come to me and hate not, love less, father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. He went on to say that those who fail to deny self and take up the cross, they can't be his disciples. Would you allow your friends and family members to come between you and obeying the gospel? Will you leave here tonight knowing that you ought to obey, the, you ought to do it tonight, but you're just too stubborn? 
not willing to make concessions that you know you need to make. Now listen, there are some people, they're not willing to pay the price because in so doing, they're going to have to come out of a lifestyle. Well, what do you mean by that? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul said, Know you not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. What about somebody who's living with another person without the benefits of marriage? And they hear the gospel of Christ. Here's my question. Can they continue to live in fornication and be a child of God? You know the answer to that, don't you? What about somebody who's living in an adulterous relationship? Here's somebody that does not have the right to be married to another person. They divorced on grounds other than fornication. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. That's the only exception. And so now they've married another person. Does God honor that marriage? You better, you better think again if you're thinking yes. Well, somebody says, well, if I obey the gospel, then he'll wash that sin away. That's right. But you've got to repent. Repentance means a change of heart, change of mind, followed by a change of action. So if somebody's living in fornication or adultery, and they won't obey the gospel, then what does that mean? You've got to quit living in adultery. You can't live like that. You can't live in sin and go to heaven. So what was it Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 6? And such were some of you. What are you saying, Paul? Yes, they had been fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals. Some had been thieves. Some had been drunkards. Some had been revilers, extortioners, but he said, you were that way. But what happened? Oh, you were washed. Did Paul know something about that? Yes, he did. Ananias said, arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Sometimes we're not willing to do what God has said we must do in order to become a child of God. Now, I want you to think about something. Could Paul relate to Agrippa or Felix or Festus? When he asked the question, Who are you, Lord, and what would you have me to do? We're presenting the gospel to somebody. And we're telling them that Christ died for their sins. That in Christ, all their sins can be washed away. And we're saying, look, this is what you must do. Not what I'm saying, it's what the Bible says. And by the way, with regard to Matthew chapter 19, it doesn't take an Einstein to understand what the Lord said about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's not complicated. The problem is not, the problem is not our interpretation. The problem is sometimes we want to circumvent the truth of Almighty God to accommodate our sinful lifestyle. That's it. No exceptions. So when Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Well, what would you have me to do, Lord? You need to repent of your sins, Saul. Why? Because you've got blood on your hands. You have been a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent, haughty man. You need to repent.
If you're living in sin, there is only one thing for you to do, and that's repent of your sins. You've got to walk away from it. You want to go to heaven? And don't think for a minute that sin's not a problem in the world we live in. Paul said, there's none righteous, no, not one. Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that he was the chief of sinners. He knew something about sin, knew something about the consequences of sin. He also knew something about the demands imposed upon him in terms of becoming a child of God. Those same demands are intact today. So, are you willing to pay the price? Willing to do what the Lord said do? Take up His cross and follow after Him on a daily basis? Go back and read about Felix again. Read chapter 25 with regard to Festus. Chapter 26 regarding Agrippa. To my knowledge, not a single one of those people obeyed the gospel. Why? Price too steep. One day we're going to stand before God. We're going to give an account of the deeds done in the body. The price might be too high for us right now. But listen, the price to follow Christ is not coming down. You understand what I'm saying? You know, right now, if you want to buy a used car, Prices are at an all-time high. You want to sell your car? You, can make, you can probably, make, probably can make money. It might be that the price will come down some, someday. But when it comes to obeying the gospel and living the Christian life, the terms, the conditions, the price, not going to change. You can wait another 25 years to obey the gospel. The terms then, same as they are today. So what about you? Will you obey the gospel? Will you come to Christ tonight? If you're outside of Christ, I don't know how I can make it any plainer. You're without hope. You're without God. That was Agrippa's state, as well as Bernice's. That was Felix's state and Drusilla's state, Festus as well. So what about you? Will you come to Christ tonight and simply do what the Bible tells us we must do to be saved? And then will you live a faithful life for Christ so that one day He will own you and crown you in heaven above? If you're here tonight and you haven't obeyed the gospel, do what they did on Pentecost Day, repent, be baptized. God will put you in the church, be faithful. That's it in a nutshell. Won't you come as we stand and sing?